2: Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now, here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well,
3: good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Our guest today is a very special man, Dr. Ken Druck, who is author and psychologist, one of the nation's pioneers in personal transformation. He's a leader in male psychology. His book, The Secrets Men Keep, Breaking the Silence Barrier, was a great bestseller. He is an expert in parent effectiveness and healing after loss. He's most recently focused on the art of turning adversity into opportunity, and that's demonstrated with his brand-new book, The Real Rules of Life, Balancing Life's Terms with Your Own. And welcome to Leading Conversations.
4: Thank you, Cheryl. It's so good to be with you.
3: It is great to have you here. Where are you today?
4: I'm in San Diego, a little bit north of San Diego, uh, nestled on the ocean, a place called Del Mar, right near where they play the uh, the uh, golf tournament, the Torrey Pines Golf Course.
3: Ah, beautiful place yeah.
4: in the world. It's my my special corner of the world, Mm -hmm. and if you were looking out the window right now, you would see a beautiful lagoon and a little stream running through it, which I call my river of life, and it empties out into the beautiful ocean, and it's where... All little halibut come in to to grow big, and or uh, all the migrating birds chase the halibut, and occasionally a deer wanders in. So it's Aww. not what you'd think San Diego normally is. Right. It's very it's my waterfront property. Oh, that's
3: fantastic. That's great. So, Ken, I you have so much going on in your life. You have had. Um, You have what we call really lived life out loud. Um, As a psychologist, you have a particular capacity to see into life. I call that, you know, a way of really seeing that some people don't have. And, you know, I'm curious about, just go back to when you first started doing work in what's called male psychology. What is that work? What does that
4: mean? Well, you know, I was Cheryl, I, I um, was one of these young dads who was looking around, who had uh, wonderful friends um, and a, a very blessed life, actually, in Colorado at the time. And what was exploding, women's centers were going up like fast food restaurants around the country,
3: right. uh, women's
4: studies programs, books for women, uh, this entire empowerment movement awakening and awareness for women and uh, I started, I, and I was going alright, you know, we're human we, we may cry on the inside, we're different in that sense um, You know, and we've gone through all this basic training as men and we need to start humanizing the experience of being a, a, a man especially because we're dads many of us and we're either going to transmit and pass on the worst posing and posturing version of what it means to be a man or we're going to be real people And uh, for me, the vote was clear. We're going to be real people. So when I was doing my doctorate and it came time to, to select a doctoral thesis, I started looking into this burgeoning psychology of men area. And there were a couple of people smatterings around the country and around the world of other guys like me who were looking at what did it mean to be a man? How 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 did we grow as men? What have we been taught? Uh, what parts of that are real and true and build a foundation on? And what parts of it are absolutely either irrelevant or destructive to our relationships, especially as dads? And uh, that became a passion of mine. And it was really my first life and first career. Wow.
3: Yeah, so yep. how did that then influence... Um, how you evolved? Who
4: was the real person in drug? The real person was somebody who had uh, had vulnerabilities, had insecurities, had dreams, had a tremendous amount of sensitivity. Uh, because if you're a sensitive guy, you know you've got to manage that in the world. You get killed if you don't. Uh-huh. So. Um, In fact, I
3: the inside on the inside right yeah well that's a good point do you think that the um, that there has been a real shift do, i mean do you see that this is becoming
4: more the norm or is it still kind of underground both both are true um, we we have hands on dads I'd like to believe that the body of work that we did through the 70s and 80s and 90s in the psychology of men and, and the things that we were writing about and the explosion of awareness led if nothing else it led us to be better fathers and better dads to really show up and to be hands-on fathers and i think we've made a tremendous amount of movement and progress as men into being hands-on hearts-on dads you know where where we are really showing up for our kids and we're presenting ourselves more authentically it's not just our job to raise our kids with quotes around that word it's our job to be real to show them, you know, what it really means to be a human being who's a male and, and to transcend that male basic training that has us being non-expressive, non-communicative, posing and posturing, um, competing with other men rather than connecting with other men uh, directly and so on.
3: Wow, that sounds delightful. You know, I, um, as you know, my the man in my life, my husband, Mark, is very much like that, you know, and and we've been together for 33 years. And that was one of the things that truly struck me when we first met was he was really someone who paid attention, someone who um, let his heart be seen. And, you know, in my mid-20s, that was new. You know, that was um, something that I hadn't seen very much of. And you know, at first I kind of thought, "Oh, he's just a nice guy." And of course, you know, nice guys were just nice guys. And then, because he was a bit persistent, I thought, "Wow, well, this is a nice guy that I might have something with." Wow, a nice guy with
4: fire. Wow. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yeah, and so you know, it has continued to be a great love story all these years, and I'm. So blessed and fortunate for that. And um, well, you guys are amazing.
4: You guys are an extraordinary couple, and uh, even what you're doing, even your upcoming, what you're doing together is amazing. And I think every couple should try it. Maybe not 52 miles of bike riding around Lake Tahoe as a fundraiser. <laughs> But um, what you've done together, you know, talk about bringing out the best in each other, uh, endurance, pushing each other, pushing yourselves, but doing it together. Uh, I know your upcoming um, bike ride is, is an amazing point of connection for your relationship, too.
3: Well, you're right, um, and for those listeners who who don't know about this, um, we are we have undertaken the challenge of um, a fundraiser, and we are riding seventy two miles around lake tahoe and um, Since neither one of us had really been on a bike for about ten years, um, we bought brand new road bikes and we are training. And I was telling Ken the first training ride we did was 12 miles, and it was a time trial. And at the end of it, I thought I was going to keel over. I thought, who am I to think I can do 72 miles? Am I out of my mind? And But hung in there and, uh, you know, continued to train and endurance continues to build. And, you know, it was interesting because our capacity to support one another – Without simply being a cheerleader for one another was really important and that was that's something that we have developed over the years that um, is so powerful so I appreciate you saying that Ken it's,
4: it's really a fun well, it's, isn't, isn't it amazing isn't, isn't it the highest expression of what we all want in our relationship to build our capacity as individuals or within any organization To be in relationship in such a way that we are building, helping each other build capacity. Things that we never would have tried or thought possible are suddenly now attainable within reach, and it's a triumph of the spirit to be able to do things like this in a lifetime. Absolutely, yeah. Uh,
3: You know, and. When I think about how you have done this work in the world with specifically with men, um, around really you're talking about partnership. You know, you're really talking about how to partner with someone in your life, um, whether it's with a woman or a man or a child, or, you know, it's really about how to be a good partner.
4: Exactly.
3: That is such a demonstration for how we need to be in the world in general.
4: Yep, and we as men get certain basic training that is the antithesis of partnership and collaboration and of really being in, co- in dialogue with other people, with really listening, uh, not just rehearsing a response, but, and, and, a lo- and almost all of the executive coaching that I do in organizational work is based around that. I mean, I went straight from this psychology of men. To talking about the psychology of men as leaders, and suddenly I was coaching leaders, and what were the biggest obstacles to their effectiveness as leaders? Well, it, not surprisingly, it tied into some of the ways that we were taught to have power over rather than power with people. I mean, all the all the things that we all know now are have to do with effective leadership are things that we as men have to cultivate many of us because right. it wasn't in our basic training. Right, right. Well, and, and I appreciate how
3: you say that, you know, power over rather than power with, um, because I, I believe that there is a myth about power, and it's power is always power over, and that anything other than that is not having power. And, right. Well, be you know, a man.
4: you got to be a yeah. man. Right, otherwise you get demoted on the male scale, right? And people think less of you. So, or at least that's that's what perpetuates the myth that we as men have this status insecurity. A great term that Mike Friedman, who wrote Type, wrote type A Behavior and Your Heart, uh, right. talked about thirty forty years ago. We carry this. Pervasive, unconscious status insecurity that we must transcend if there's any hope for us to become empowering leaders and great leaders. Well, I just, I love this. So,
3: you know, you have taken this and certainly applied this to organizations and to the people in it, as you say. Um, And you've actually written a book called Rules of Life Balancing Life's Terms with Your Own. And in this, you do expand. You move outside of um, simply the male world to all of us. And, and I know the, that there's ways to take these rules and apply them to organizations. And I want to talk about that um, in our next segment. But give us just the headline um, in our, the last couple minutes in this segment. Give us the headline of what
4: this book, The Real Rules of Life, is about. Carol, as 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 you're aware, my life took a huge left turn um sixteen years ago. Um I was I, I was living the blessed life uh when my oldest daughter, Jenna, was killed while studying abroad. And for me, everything I had ever learned, everything I believed in, was turned inside out. And it really it required me pushing the reset button on life and on what the real rules of life were, it caused me to, ex- to really examine. I was so devastated that I had to examine every assumption, attribution, everything I believed, and get real. Otherwise, I wouldn't have survived.
3: And so the real rules came out of that?
4: The real rules are the distilled essence of what I have learned. You know, I, when when Jenna died, I started a foundation in her name, the Jenna Drug Center, which has now helped thousands of families worldwide deal with the loss of a loved one, especially a child. We also have a leadership program for girls called Spirit of Leadership. But what I have learned from working with families after 9-11, because... As you know, I've become the go-to guy when there's a tragedy or a disaster, whether it's yeah. Hurricane Katrina yeah. or 9-11. I get called in to help out, to help organize right. the, the response. And uh, what I've learned from my own experience and what I've learned from the people that I've worked with is the core is the essence of what life really is and unless we're grounded in what life really is we're living a bunch of bunch of myths and misconceptions and i want to share with you what those real rules are
3: well we're going to do that when we come right back with dr kendrick
2: Right here on the bottom line of Business Talk, Voice America Business.
0: Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel.
2: We appreciate you joining our Leading Conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Well, welcome
3: back to Leading Conversations. We are speaking this morning with Dr. Ken Druck. So, Kim, before we went into break, uh, you you talked about, you gave us a headline on your new book, The Real Rules of Life, Balancing Life's Terms with Your Own. So let's talk about some of these rules, and then I want to talk about how they apply to us today. Um, And, you know, there's one rule that I know you could talk about forever. We could all talk about forever, but it's the first one, and um, it's called Life is Not Fair. It's more than fair. So what is this?
4: Isn't that crazy? I mean, we all know (laughs) it's the first and most obvious one. Life is not fair. Every single one of us has arrived at that feeling, even if we didn't say the words. Something happened. We put a beautiful blueprint together for something wonderful to happen. We worked our tail off to make it come true and you know we put every bit of sweat equity into it and then it doesn't happen or something else Go happens ahead. and we're standing there in the moment of this is not fair I I signed up for this to work I did a B and C was supposed to happen and this is not what I signed up for so how we respond in that moment Uh, Whether we're sitting there feeling betrayed, whether we're sitting there um, wondering what went wrong, who's at fault, what did I do wrong, what did you do wrong, looking for feeling like a victim, looking for somebody to blame, feeling abandoned, whatever it is. We've all stood in that moment, but how we transition from that moment defines our character. How we begin to embrace plan B, how we... Act with humility and understanding that, and this is real rule number three, there are no deals. Uh, We think we have a deal. And until you have put out in front of you all the unconscious, unspoken deals that you think you've made with the universe or all the forces that are more powerful than yourself or the forces in the universe that we have to coexist with, like gravity – um, you know until we know what deals we think we 've made mm-hmm. uh, we 're operating without an awareness of the fine print of life so right there are right. no so life is not fair. we all know that you know I woke up in the middle of um, you know i I fell to my knees um when the phone rang, and somebody was on the other phone from ten thousand miles away, telling me that my daughter had been in a terrible accident um My whole, every cell in my being turned inside out. Um, Plan A was over forever. And life was not fair. And I spent a lot of time, you know, looking at feeling like life is not fair. And until I realized that, you know what, these are life's terms. Life has its own terms, no matter how special or exempt or entitled Um, or, you know, whatever I might feel, or righteous, I might feel life is going to have its say. Life is going to have its say, and life is bigger than me. That doesn't mean that I don't fiercely go after my dreams, and dream dream my dreams, and set my terms, and, and, and live the life that I want. Of course I do, but I do it with humility and understanding that life is eventually going to have its say. Now, I came to realize was that life wasn't fair but that in another way, life is more than fair. Paradox is the highest form of understanding grief and loss as well as many other things. Life is more than fair. What are we doing spinning through space on this little blue planet, <laughs> breathing, having bodies that know how to digest nourishment and eliminate waste um, being able to take air, nutrients out of the air, being able to be conscious and awake and alive and connected to other people and be able to love and be able to create and be able to be on the radio with you right now, those are the simple miracles that that we are surrounded by. We're immersed in every day, so life is more than fair. I love that. I love
3: that. You know... You have talked about um,
4: living losses. Tell, talk to us about that. Cheryl, when I started the Gender Drug Center, we started getting calls from all over the world, from, especially from parents who had lost a child. But we also then started getting calls from parents whose kids were disappeared, Kids were estranged, kids were incarcerated, kids were strung out on drugs, Uh, kids had been debilitated in a car accident, were quadriplegics. From people who were experiencing something that I didn't have a name for at the time, but since then I have called living losses, Um, people who went for their annual physical and the doctor said, I want you to come back Tuesday and take this test, Uh, And suddenly they suffered the loss of the life they had known, of the dreams they had for their child, for themselves. Um, Everything changed on a dime in many cases. So we suffer, we grieve, even when the, you know, even the subtlest of ways as we get older and we turn 60 or 70 or whatever, sometimes we don't know why we're feeling so heavy And there's something weighing on our hearts, and it's because we're grieving the loss of an earlier season of life. Or if we're suffering from some kind of, you know, an ache or pain, or we just had to have the hip replaced, or we don't hold the executive position anymore, and uh, we're transitioning or we're setting up some kind of succession, and we begin to have this empty feeling inside. Why? Because we're experiencing a living loss. And you know, even with executives, you know, who can't let go and delegate, why are they holding on so tight? Or founders of organizations, because often they're grieving the loss of the time where they could do hands-on work. They had their hands in everything. They felt great about it. They felt the immediate rewards of it. They weren't two steps removed by being the executives or managers. So. Living losses are a critical thing for us to understand, to understand that at times in this life we are grieving even though there hasn't been a life loss.
3: You know, that's pretty fascinating. Uh, you know you know that I work with executives also and uh, CEOs and senior leaders and my executive coaching work and with my company, Alexa Consulting. And, you know, I find what you're saying is very true. Um that a lot of what appears to be a lack of skill, i.e., well, this person doesn't know how to delegate. We have to teach him or her. Um, is actually has that underlying thread of something else going on, and that's what we need to get to in order for behavior to change. Exactly and that grieving process you're talking about. You know, moving from the doer. To the um, developer of people uh, or to the vision holder um, you know, that's a tough transition for people um, yeah, and that's sometimes really having takes, to
4: let go yeah and sometimes you know if we understand that they're grieving and we say you know I'm sorry for your loss which is one of the most profound things you can say you know, rather than trying to put a spin on it and, you know, a, a psychological spin or a spiritual or karmic or any any of the spins that we can put on things. Right. Just to say, to stand with that person in their moment of having to let go and loss and to validate that they are, you know, I can see how hard this is for you. I can see... How much it fe- how it feels like you're leaving so much behind with uncertainty about what's ahead, you know. And, and if and if we treat it as as though that person is grieving, and that resonates and that touches that person, they have that truth response in their eyes, like you you hit it. Right. Um, then that's the issue. That's the issue. That's where we need to spend time. And once somebody feels validated in that, there's more permission go and then to start creating the new chapter which is actually the new and improved and better version of of what time it is in our lives and in our organizations which is you know you setting up the succession you said you delegating you empowering people around you so you're not as needed and you're really cultivating uh, a, an organizational you know culture
3: right yeah it's just fascinating to me, and this is something I've always um, seen in uh, my in the work that I do, and you know it's very much like the work you do. Having an understanding of the human condition and you know what makes people tick is so powerful in the work we do um, with executive development, or the work we do in supporting CEOs, um, to take their organization to the
4: next level. Uh, exactly.
3: Right? You know, I mean, it's you know,
4: so, so powerful. And and when we do the organizational effectiveness retreats, you know, what what are those things about anyhow? You know, it's more touchy-feely stuff. What are we doing here with all this soft stuff and we got all these hard numbers? And, and yet the intangible element of forthrightness, of creating safety, Uh, To have whatever essential conversations are needed for that organization of Confronting the elephant in the room and the issues under the table getting them all out on the table is what makes an organization truly strong Authentically strong is what empowers that organization to be its at its best and highest expression and we've got to do that personal work parallels the organizational work. Otherwise, we have strategic plans and blueprints and a lot of blah, blah, blah that's going to right. mean nothing, that's going to be the, the diluted version of what we all dreamt.
3: I love how you say that. You know, it, it is um, interesting to me, one of the other rules you have is you got to have skin in the game, taking risks and investing yourself. And,
4: yep.
3: and I like what you say. You don't say investing in yourself. You say investing yourself. So talk yes. a little bit more about that and how it applies to life and how it applies to um, life inside organizations.
4: Well... You know, Each one of us can do a little audit on ourselves, and on a scale from 1 to 10, how much am I putting into the relationships, if I had to pick a few right now, that are, that are really the most precious and important and critical in my life? And if I had to scale 1 to 10, how much do I invest myself, heart and soul, in my work? How much of myself am I really putting in on a scale from 1 to 10? And the truth is that until we put some skin in the game, until we invest ourselves, we put something on the line, we put our hearts on the line, we put ourselves and our efforts on the line, we dare to dream and set a goal and go for it and get whatever. Even if it's our own resistance, our own fears, whatever it is, deal with it, make the investment. Sometimes we play like we've got forever. Sometimes we play like we're just going through the motions. When, when you're at the bottom of pain and the people who who for years were coming to the Jenna Drug center for help because the, their whole lives had been obliterated and even in that moment that darkest, most difficult moment of their lives, there were places where they'd be running into walls how could it couldn't have be been more difficult and more challenging. They were on life support and survival mode, and yet some of the old patterns would get in the way. People show such an incredible lack. You think that at a moment where we're down, we would lend a hand. We'd put our hand out to ourselves to pull ourselves up, to help ourselves breathe, you know, one breath at a time. And yet that's the time for a lot of people where they are brutal, self-critical, And what do we teach at the core? We teach parents to be self-compassionate. It's the practice of self-compassion rather than self-criticism and brutality and admonitions and judgment and rushing and pressuring ourselves that really is the empowerment that people need for healing, for facing any setback or challenge, or for really moving to the next level. Wow.
3: So how long does it take someone to get all the way through this and actually do everything? (laughs) I mean, can't we just like go check, 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 check with all these (laughs) rules?
4: You know what? These are, you know, a friend of mine said, I'm going to read your book tonight. And uh, he's a a very, very well-known thought and program leader in the world. And he called me back the next day and he says, no, I'm not reading this. I'm starting to go through all the exercises at the end of the chapters because this is not a a four-hour read. This is a chance for me to look at, to really do an audit of how life really is and how I've constructed my beliefs. And, you know, even with all my new age thinking, you know, and he said, look, I'm the guy, you know, you call my answering machine and it says, you know, um, it's your choice to have a great day, you know. And the truth is, there are days where that we're choiceless. We're in choiceless unknowingness. There are days we're in choiceless pain. There are days where we don't have that kind of a choice. And we need to be kind and gentle, compassionate and patient with ourselves and be human. And uh, he said, this is really helping me reconnect with my own humanity.
3: Hmm. I love that. Well, let's talk more about reconnecting with one's own humanity in our next segment. We come right back.
2: Consulting, developing leaders worldwide.
0: Are you in a workplace filled with harmony or chaos? Is it your boss causing undue stress, or is it your coworkers? Maybe it's the work you're doing. Maybe it's the work environment. You need real solutions from someone who has over 25 years of workplace consulting experience. Tune in to Today's Workplace with Emery Mulling, your at-work expert. Emery and his guests will bring you expert solutions to the problems found in work environments today. Solutions you can apply right away to create a pleasurable workspace. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. If you are looking for both an inside and insightful look at what you're not seeing in media coverage of today's legal, business, and policy battles, Tune in to In the Court of Public Opinion with host Jim Haggerty. What happens in the public arena affects us all. Whether you're following the latest high-profile court case, corporate crisis, or are just interested in government and policy, be sure to tune in every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. The witnesses are ready and the jury seated. So join us for our next session in the Court of Public Opinion. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business.
2: We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. So we're speaking
3: with Dr. The Ken Druck today. This is Cheryl Vito on leading conversations So, in this conversation, Ken, we have moved through, you know, how people need to look at themselves in order to look at life, and we've talked about the impact of the self on the organization. Um, I love what you said about someone reading your book, telling you that the book is really teaching him how to reconnect with his own humanity. That's beautiful. and. So talk a little bit about reconnecting with one's own humanity and how that then influences or impacts organizations as a whole.
4: Well, I think in a very subtle way, Cheryl, we disallow. We're we're such high achievers. We set the bar so high for ourselves. We expect so much of ourselves we power forward and power through as much as we can. And uh, and isn't that a beautiful, noble thing for us to want to do for ourselves? But oftentimes what gets left out of the equation is our humanity, is the fact that there are still some parts of us that are very young, you know, insecure parts, shadow parts, you um, Inexperienced parts, parts that have never been here before, Uh, and yet we want to appear as though we have the whole thing under control, and we are mastering, you know, we're such masters of so many things that we forget that not every part of us has achieved mastery, Hmm. that we need to carry a little more humility rather than kind of righteous certainty. And I think that when we do that, we make ourselves more approachable. We humanize ourselves to the organizations that we work for and with and to the people that work with us. You know, we do an exercise in some of the organizational effectiveness work I do where I take a video camera and, I, and we circle the room. So we have 25 people in the room and we show everybody's face. And then we analyze how approachable that person's face is. What's the message? Is it a don't mess with me, or don't you dare, or is it a, hey, I'm fragile, don't hurt me? Is it a um, I don't feel anything kind of indifferent face? Is it a welcoming face? And we, we all carry an air of approachability, but I would suggest that if we carry an openness in our face, in our eyes, and in our conversation, and in our listening style – that we make ourselves more effective, more approachable, more collaborative, more creative, um, and more successful. And um, that's, that's really what I, what I was talking about and what we do. And uh, I think if we, if we can look at that with humility, be a little more vulnerable. You know, people love us and connect with us for our vulnerability. They admire our image, but they connect with us because of our vulnerability. And that means people being open, transparent, and forthright with one another in organizations.
3: Well and you know there's a lot of risk in that in organizations. Yep. and people um, often feel that if they reveal too much of that side of themselves, um, that they will be viewed as weak, that they will be viewed as um, not being able to um, have life under control, manage their life um, outside of the organization. And, and they, you know, when one feels vulnerable, um, one then feels open to attack. Exactly. So,
4: how do you get people past that? I think you know all this. It's it's so interesting how all this comes out in the wash. When we do, you know, when I started doing team building programs, were they really team building programs? No, I was called by uh, you know the chairperson of the board or the CEO or the executive management team. Why? Because things, were, you know, it was simple A B C. I would get walk in and I'd say what's working and what's not working. And people would define and translate what was happening in that organizational culture. It wasn't safe to be real. It wasn't safe to be honest. And we all have to ask ourselves what kind of a culture are we building? Are we going to reward people for hiding, for, you know, hiding the way they feel, how they feel about things, which really isn't true? Because. You can't hide. It comes out sideways. It comes right. out through end runs, through passive resist and passive-aggressive behavior, through undermining, through end runs and all that. But are we building a culture where it's safe, and the operational word is safe, safety, and inclusion, and where everybody's invited and included, where we make it safe for people to tell the truth? And the real rules of life are, are we going to make it safe for us to tell the truth to ourselves? About how life really is. Uh, somebody asked me the other day, said Ken, is, "Is there a real rule of life that you didn't include in the book that you wish you had?" And I had just come from a, a coaching session with a man who's dying of ALS, and I said, "Yeah, the real rule that you know what we all really do die, and it's mm-hmm. not just a bad rumor. We all really yeah. die, and and cultivating a sense of." Understanding that that is simply life on life's terms. The package deal is that we get to live, and then we get to go through this experience, which I'm not completely—I I don't know what it is called—dying. Right. Um, so, anyhow, we want to be—we want to create safety in our organizations, in our relationship, and within our own self-judgment for us to be real. We don't want to roll it out um, in an indiscreet or in an impulsive, or in a a disorganized way, I'm not saying people should bare their souls indiscriminately. We want to roll it out in the context of solving or addressing an issue or solving a problem. And we want to lead with our own reality, with our own truth. And that doesn't mean people need to be beholden to it. Mm -hmm. It means that we understand the risk we're taking, uh, we ask for people, we preface what we say by asking for people uh, to hopefully not judge us, but to hear us out. Um, we ask for their honest, authentic response. We, If there are snipers in the room, we perhaps meet with those people beforehand and say, you know, I, I'm going to appreciate your support for what I'm doing. So we, we ourselves, We, uh, if we do the risk assessment, and it's risky, we account for how to reduce, reduce that risk, but it doesn't stop us from being forthright and honest, and we have the raw courage to be that and to be a constructive part of our organization culture.
3: Yeah, the the concept of having snipers in the room or people throwing darts at ideas, um you know, it happens a lot, and and it often it is, is behavior that is um, framed as honesty, and yet uh, it, I see it as it's almost you call it snipers, I call it arsonists. People who yep. start the fire and then sit back and watch, exactly. and and somehow it's never connected to them. Yes. Um, you know, and, and because they're
4: divisive, and they're very sneaky and very slippery, and
3: yeah.
4: it's something they've mastered. I mean, I bow to these people. I say, I say, you are a master. Look at how good you are at this. You're fantastic, You know whether they're doing it in an organization or they're being uh, divisive in their marriage or they're being divisive with their kids or divisive with themselves. God, look at you. You just talked yourself right out of that. You're (laughs) amazing. What would it be like to turn that mastery and point the arrow in the other direction, have it working for you? Because all this does is create what? Distrust, lack of safety. Lack of people, uh, you know, it inhibits people, it inhibits progress and production, it establishes a culture uh, where people are walking around on eggshells and where there's always at least a few elephants in the room, and that is waste. That is the biggest source of organizational waste. I mean, I love people who come through and you know, do exceptional project management. But unless we've covered the interpersonal side of organizational effectiveness, then we're not maximizing every opportunity that we have to be the best company we can be.
3: Right, right, right. So, you know, in um, speaking of leadership, in, at the Jenna Druck Center, you work with um, young women, young girls, Um, and there's a leadership program.
4: Just came from it Saturday. We had a big conference for girls from 10 to 17 years old from all over the region. I call them my adopted daughters.
3: (laughs) That's fantastic. What a great time to begin to instill the the spirit of leadership, which is what your program is called. So tell me about the spirit of leadership and, and how, what does, Leadership look like in a young person.
4: That's I mean, a beautiful I, question, Cheryl. Well, first of all, I would love you know you know what would be the biggest treat for our girls would be to meet somebody like you and um, to hear your story. So here I am on your show, inviting you to come down <laughs> and be our honored guest with our girls. You know, Jenna, my daughter, my oldest daughter, Jenna started a leadership program when she was a sophomore in high school. She came up to me and said, Dad, if this is the best we can do, the experience for adolescent girls sucks. It just sucks, Dad. We, we're taught to be mean to other girls. We're taught that it's all about boys. It's all about our bodies and our, our appearance and our image. Um, and we're taught to be so hypercritical with ourselves. And if that's the best we can do, it's unacceptable to me. And I'm going to do something different. And Jenna started a leadership program, so the Spirit of Leadership program is the template that she created at age 15 saying, Dad, I have a vision for a different kind of world for girls. And that's the world that we've created now for over 16,000 girls that have gone through our leadership training and development training. And the core of it starts with becoming a leader in your own life. So it starts with you as a girl. And the girls come in, and they don't, you know, they come in 10, 11, 12, because now we've had to move it back to middle school because middle school is now the new high school, Mm. you know? Girls are being confronted with image issues. Uh, I mean, we have amazing teachers come and talk to our girls we had Hafsat Abiola, whose father was the assassinated uh, di- uh, uh, ma- uh, leader of Nigeria, mm. um, who was jailed and removed from office, who's now uh, leading the, de- the movement for democracy. And she's looking at our 10-year-old, 12-year-old girl saying, hey, you guys think you had a bad hair day? You know, let's get real. Right. Let's talk about what we do to ourselves as girls and what we can do to do better. How can we become leaders in our own lives? And then, how can we become leaders in our families, in our communities, in our friendship circles, in our networks, in our communities, and in the world? What does that look like for us as girls? And they change over the course of the conference and their programs at the Gender Drug Center. You see this transformation occurring. Why? Because it's the truth for them. It's no longer living this false life, posing and posturing as a perfect girl. It's saying, you know what? I come in this package. This is me. This is my body. This is my face. This is my hair. This is my family. This is my ethnicity. This is what I know that I don't have to be afraid of saying. I can tell the truth here, and I'm with my tribe of sisters, of young women like me from all over the community who are going for the gold ring, who want to become leaders in their own lives and in their communities. And it is one of the greatest gifts in my life to stand in front of, as I did Saturday, these girls and to share. And You know what I did Saturday? I showed them my new book. The program we had Saturday was called Words and Power. And I brought my new book. It's the first (laughs) audience I've shown the book to. And I read them a section from the book. And uh, I got about 500 hugs before I left that morning. That's fantastic.
3: Well, you know, you have really um, brought it all home. And beginning with a young person so that these new messages are an imprint so that they carry these through their lives um, is going to really help um, shift to the way the world is. And you know, we have about one minute left. And and you know, I know people are going to want to know more about this. They're going to want to be able to contact you. What's the best way for that to happen?
4: Cheryl, they can contact me uh, best through the best way is to go to my website, Kendruck.com. K-E-N-D-R-U-C-K.com. And they can also go to my uh, Dr. Ken Druck Facebook page, or they can call us at um, in San Diego. We're just above San Diego, and they can call us at 858-755-2022. And uh, we'd love to hear from people, their reactions, Um We'd love to hear their feedback about the real rules of life. I'm always curious about what are the real rules of life for my audience right, and for your right. audience. What do people right. think the real rules are, things that you weren't, you, know, you weren't necessarily taught but you've learned? You know what? This is the way life really is. And right. if I can get grounded in that truth, uh, I'll be better. I'll be able to deal with life as it truly is. I will grow strong. I will grow my soul um, rather than you know, kind of avoiding, hiding, denying, repressing, and all those other opportunities we have that don't lead anywhere.
3: Well, thank you for being with us today, Ken. It's been a real honor. The book is The Real Rules of Life, Balancing Life's Terms with Your
4: Own. It's been great having you here, Dr. Ken. Sure, thank you so much. I love your show, and I'm honored to have been a guest with you today, and uh, I love your work as well. So thank you so much.
3: Remember, everyone, to think big the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl LaCivito.